This is Photo Biz X, episode number 368. And today, something totally different. I'm interviewing a successful wildlife photographer who has three very strategic parts to his business, which makes it the success it is. Not only that, he is incredibly talented and his photography is just amazing. I'm talking about Joshua Holko, and that interview's coming up in just a minute. Are you planning to have a successful wedding and portrait photography business? Join Andrew as he interviews successful photographers and business experts to fast track your success. Welcome to the Photo Biz Exposed podcast with your host, Andrew Helmich. Hey, it's Andrew Helmich here from Impact Images and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Again, another deviation from the usual for today's episode where we talk wildlife photography, <laughs> but we are going into the business side of things with Josh who has, yeah, I think you'll agree, an incredible business like you'll hear in just a minute. Before we get into that, if you didn't catch last week's episode, which again was a stray from the normal, I interviewed Katie and Simon Hawkins from the UK. The focus was on how to start a successful podcast if you're looking to do so for your photography business. And really, the information that we covered in that interview could be applied to starting a YouTube channel, creating projects to grow your visibility as a photographer, or if you actually want to start a podcast, we cover the technical side of things, what to focus on to make it a success. It's all in last week's interview. It is a specialized type of interview and it will live on in the archives for you if you ever decide to start a podcast of your own. Oh, and one quick thing before we jump into today's interview with Josh, and that is the daily vlog challenge is kicking off today. That's Monday, the 29th of June. If you are listening to the podcast as it goes live, there is still time to get in for today's or this month challenge. I'll be taking a break from the challenge next month, possibly the one after as well. So if this is something that you want to do, if you're looking to get more comfortable being yourself on camera, in video, come and join us in the challenge and head over to dailyvlogchallenge.com if you're looking for more information. You can still get in. It's not too late to get on board with that one. Alrighty, let's get on with the rest of this show. Photo Biz Exposed. Interviews with photographers to help you build a better photography business. If you are hearing this announcement, it does mean you are listening to the free version of the podcast, and that means you won't hear the full interview with Josh today. So if you are loving what you hear from Josh in the first half of this interview, and you would like to hear the full interview, you can do that with a $1 30-day trial membership. If you head over to photobizx.com forward slash try, you'll find all the information you need on that page, photobizx.com forward slash try. Welcome to another great eye for business. It's time for Andrew's special guest. Something and someone different for today's interview. Our guest started photography at around 12 years of age, but it wasn't for many years afterwards until he turned full-time professional. His passion has always been nature photography, but today he'd be classified as a wildlife photographer. In particular, a polar photographer. That's right, he spends most of the year down in Antarctica or up in the Arctic. 
He left a corporate job to pursue photography full-time. He travels extensively, including to the polar areas he most wanted to photograph, and he did this at significant personal cost to help build his portfolio and his network. Today, he has too many awards to list here, and one look at his portfolio, it's no wonder. His work is incredible, and the places he's seen, truly amazing. I'm talking about Melbourne-based photographer Joshua Holko, and I'm wrapped to have him here with us now. Joshua, welcome, mate. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's a real pleasure to be here, and it's fantastic to be able to talk to you today. Oh, mate, I've been looking at your work. I just watched that video on your website. Do you still pinch yourself at the job you get to do, or does it just feel <laughs> normal? <laughs> no, you know, I do every now and again. I mean, I feel very blessed in that I'm fortunate to be able to do what I love, and therefore, I don't really think of it as a job. You know, for me, it's it's a lifestyle. So I do feel very blessed and fortunate in that regard. And look, it wasn't always easy to get to that point in time. It's taken a lot of work and it's still a lot of work, to be honest with you. Right. I'm going to dive into the business side of things. But before we get to all that, do you feel the cold? <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. Honestly, I didn't used to, but ever since I turned 40, Things just started to slide a little downhill, and I tend to feel it a little bit more than I used to. <laughs> well, I ski in Japan most years, and we get to some pretty cold temperatures over there, and I'm terrible, but I ski with my younger brother and my son, and they don't feel it as much as me. So that's why I was curious, because some people feel it more than others. Can you give us an idea of what you actually wear when you're out in the field shooting? Yeah, that's actually a good question. You know, I like to say there's no such thing as cold weather. There's just bad clothing. <laughs> so being properly dressed is really a big part of it, especially if because I can be spending hours at a time lying in the snow and it can be minus 30, minus 40 degrees. So you need to be properly dressed. So, you know, it starts with obviously like something like a wool base layer and then mid layers and then second mid layer and then, you know, heavy outer clothing. So big warm down jackets and pants and things like that. But you still get cold. I mean, I still get cold fingers to the point where I can't feel them. And I've had frostbite several times. So it's certainly a challenge. Wow. <laughs> and what about your hands? Because you need to control the camera. Like, how do you do that? Because I imagine you have huge mitts on, probably with undergloves as well. Yeah, look, it's really a big challenge to be able to keep your fingers warm. I tend to wear a big heavy glove on my left hand with like an inner, inner mitt. And that tends to keep that hand quite warm because I don't need a lot of fine dexterity with my left hand. But with my right hand, uh, that's operating things like the shutter and the f-stop and things like that. I need to have a lot more control. So I'm wearing a much thinner glove. So that hand gets quite cold quite quickly. And then, you know, sometimes you'll just have to stop for a while and just warm your hands up because they do get quite cold. Yeah, right. Wow. And the work that you do, are you working solo or do you always have someone else with you? No, I work solo and it depends on what I'm doing, but I do work solo quite a bit of the time and other times I'll work in small groups. It depends a lot on whether I'm running a workshop or an expedition or whether I'm working on a personal project. So just for example, one of the last personal projects I did in Mongolia late last year in winter for the Palace Cat, which is a very small cat. Maybe I'll go into that a bit later, quite a rare cat. I was working alone. So that's a very rare, hard to find animal. And I just, I needed to be working on my own. But then other times when I'm working with something like penguins or something that's far easier than I might be working in a group. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I referenced the video that I saw on your website, and I think that was shot by Abraham Joff, who started out in weddings. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He and I teamed up for that project a few years ago. It was an idea that I'd had floating around in my head. I'd gone up to photograph polar bears in Svalbard in winter on the sea ice a couple of years before that video. And I'd had such an incredible experience that I wanted to go back and make a video and show what it was like. And so I went away, but I said, what do you reckon about doing this as a project together? And he said, well, I'd love to, but uh, it's going to be quite expensive. And I said, yeah, I know. So we kind of worked on that together from a finances perspective to make it happen and then uh, and then drove the project forward. Wow. Well, in that video, I mean, I can see and we can see that you're photographing polar bears. You've got the mother and the cub. I think it's called a cub there in the shot. But I don't see a rifle, any firearm, no protection. Were they there? Do you have those things with you? Yeah, look, the situation in Svalbard where that was shot is that you have to carry a rifle by law. You can't go out into the field without one. So we actually had a rifle, but it was back on one of the snowmobiles. I didn't want it included in any of the shots just because I felt it was not about that. It was, you know, it was really about being out on the ice with the bears. And I would never shoot a polar bear anyway, no matter what the circumstances, but we had to have one. So the answer to the question is yes, it was there. I mean, safety is obviously a concern with polar bears because they are the largest land predator on the planet and they can run you know, 100 metres on ice in seven seconds. So they can outrun you, outclimb you, and they can smell you over a mile away. So it's it's something we have to be very careful of. And hence my line of questioning. I mean, I'm guessing you're in danger a lot of the time you're out there. And in that particular bit of footage, I mean, just before those scenes, you know, you had seal blood there. That they'd missed out on a kill. You were pretty close to them. She had a cub with her. I mean, that that's a pretty dangerous situation, isn't it? Look, with all wildlife, it's all about knowing the animal and knowing how to work with the animal. So I've been photographing polar bears for many, many years now on the sea ice, and I've just learned a lot about their behavior and their mannerisms. And in this particular situation, we had, it's actually a male and a female. I misquoted in that video. We actually had a situation where the male polar bear was only interested in the female. So wherever the female went, he was just going to follow. So he showed absolutely no interest in us at all. She was a little curious, but never came very close to us. So I never really felt that we were in a dangerous situation with these particular bears. Whereas I have at other times been photographing bears where they've been hunting, and they've clearly been in hunting mode on the edge of the sea ice. And in those cases, obviously, we're a lot more careful because we don't want to end up on the bad side of a situation with a polar bear. For sure, for sure. I want to come back to the excitement and, and the thrill of going out on these shoots, whether it's on your own or for your personal projects or with a group. But let me ask you about the business side of things. How are you making a living today doing what you do? Okay, so I really have what I call a tripod approach to my business. And this is a question I get asked quite a bit. So there are three sides to my business. The first one is what I call the image licensing side. So there's a lot of corporations out there that want to license high-quality wildlife imagery for everything from corporate reports to annual reports to all this kind of thing. And a lot of the very large multinational companies these days want to green spray their companies. So they're looking to put images of polar bears and penguins and things like that on these reports into their marketing material. And they're looking for the highest quality imagery they can get. So they're not going to stock libraries online. They're looking for uh, particular types of images. And usually when I get contacted by one of these companies, it's because they've already made up their mind that they've found my photograph. That's the photograph they want to use. So then it's just a question of negotiating a rate because obviously I can't run a business and feed my family getting $5 an image for a stock library. So I don't do stock at all. No stock libraries. Everything I do is individually rights managed directly with the company. Right. How do these companies actually find your photography if they're not in stock libraries? 
a lot of it is simply word of mouth. A lot of it is referral business. And a lot of it is just literally through Google. If you jump on Google and you start searching for polar images, my images come up very, very quickly. Uh, and that's happened, obviously, not overnight, but it's taken a lot of years to build that up. Right. So I'm looking at some of your photos now. If I click on them, there's no watermark. No, that's right. So how do you stop me from stealing it? Well, I can't. And to be honest with you, that is a huge problem for me in China in particular. A lot of my photography is being used without me being paid for it by travel companies, but there's nothing I can do about that. And they're going to use it even if it's watermarked. I've had images that were displayed on National Geographic's website with the logos and watermarks that just get erased and, and then the image gets used anyway. So I can't do anything about that. So what I do do is I worry about the large multinational corporations that want to do the right thing. You know, if someone like, I'll just give you an example, someone like a, a BHP is not going to steal an image. No. You would hope. They're going to to do the right thing and pay for it. So I'm much more interested in dealing with them than I am in worrying about the small travel company that's ripped off my image because they couldn't afford to probably license it anyway. And if they were going to pay me $20, that really doesn't pay my bills. So it's very, very difficult to stay on top of it. And look, I probably see examples on a three or four times a week where I've seen my work turn up where I haven't been paid for it. Wow. Oh, that must be so frustrating. It is really frustrating, but I've kind of got to the point now where I'm almost over it. Like there's literally nothing I can do about it. I've even had images turn up on some very well-known photo review websites where the image has been claimed as fair use and it's clearly not fair use. So this is a constant thorn in my side, to be honest with you. Right. You mentioned an agent there. So does he or she have a, you know, a stock letter that they send out when they see one of your photos pop up somewhere it shouldn't? No, my agent doesn't actually deal with the image licensing side of it at all. He deals only with the print side of my business. So the image license side of it, I deal with it entirely myself. And if I see something where an image of mine is being used inappropriately, I have a standard letter that I send out. If it's a non-commercial use, for example, someone's personal blog or whatever it might be, it's non-commercial, I tend not to worry too much about it. Usually, I'm happy for them just to credit me and link to my website. Now, that's then creating a greater awareness of my work and helping to promote my work and link people back to my website. But if it's a commercial operation, like maybe it's a veterinarian or something like that, for example, it's using a picture of mine of some wildlife to promote their business, then I will contact them and say, look, hey, you know, this is my work. I need to get paid for it. And usually they'll do one or two things. Usually they'll either take the image down or they'll pay for it. And I price my work very much on an individual basis. So if you are a small guy who's doing a CD label in your backyard and you really want to use my iceberg image on it, it's not going to be $5,000 because clearly that person's not going to be able to afford it. So I price it according to what I feel is appropriate to the the use that they're going to make of the image. Whereas if it is a large multinational corporate, then I'm obviously going to charge them a lot more, particularly if it's an oil company or something like that. <laughs> yes. I can see why their prices would be a lot higher. So let's say it is a BHP, for example, and they want to use one of your images in their annual report. Would that be a typical use? It would be a typical use, yeah. Okay, so how do you price that? I usually try and find out where the annual report is going to be circulated. So is it an internal document or is it a document that's going to shareholders? Because that has a lot to do with the circulation. So what's the circulation of the document going to be? The higher the circulation, the higher the price. Is it going to be printed or is it going to be digital only? And what I did was many years ago, I went to a stock, uh, to this, one of the largest stock libraries, I think it was Getty at the time, and I just had a look how they priced their work and what were the criteria that they used to increase or decrease the price. And I did the same thing, but I came up with my own numbers. 
based on what I felt I needed to make to live. And that's how I did it. And then, so therefore, I'll ask those kind of questions because these emails and contacts always start the same way. It doesn't matter about the size of the company. I'll give you an example. So about, I think it was a little over two months ago now, I got an email from the Department of Defense of the United States. And they wanted to use a particular iceberg photograph of mine on the cover of an internal magazine they have for, I forget now, for the department. But it was very clearly for the Department of Defense of the United States. And the email came in and said, we'd like to use this photograph. What would be the process? So I wrote back to them with a bunch of questions to help and with an idea to help get uh, an establishment of uh, a budget. And they basically wrote back to me and said, oh, we were hoping to use the image for free. We have no budget. Now, this is the Department of Defense of the United States. They've got the biggest budget in the world. What they really mean is not that we don't have any money to spend, it's that we don't want to spend any money. Yes. So then it becomes, you know, a simply a conversation I have to have with them where often I have to educate them, make them aware that this is how I make my living. Right. And that I need to get paid for my work. And that typically, you know, for an image like this in this sort of environment, you might be paying somewhere around the seven to ten, twelve thousand dollars. And from there, I can get a good feeling about where they want to go with it. Now, in this case, there was no sale made. They really did want the image for nothing, and I just said, no way. Not going to happen. Do they say things to you like, Joshua, you know, we're going to give you so much exposure? <laughs> uh, look, I don't hear that as much as I used to, but occasionally I hear that. But look, you know, you can't need exposure. Uh, it doesn't put coffee on the table, and it doesn't put my kids through school. So I'm not interested in that. I can generate my own exposure. And I think anyone who, you know, is – serious about their business is never going to do anything simply for exposure. Right. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, you know, I also, I'm not big on the dangle, what I call the dangled carrot approach either, where give us the image for little or nothing this time and we'll make it up to you on the next one. Yeah, right. I don't kind of go into that either. It's, you know, I big believe in putting the best foot forward first time. So I do that when I deal with my clients and I expect the same in return. For sure. I imagine that when you go away for these trips to build your portfolio for your workshops, you know, you might be away, is it a month at a time, two months at a time? Yeah, it can be upwards of two and two and a half months at a time. I mean, because of the amount of travel that's involved in getting to some of these places, you know, you really don't want to go for a week or two weeks or three weeks because it's just too long to get there. And you need to have time in the field to get these images. I mean, the more time you can invest, I find, the better the chances you have of getting high-quality imagery. Because in many respects, when it comes to wildlife, it's a bit of a waiting game. You know, if the weather is not cooperating today, well, maybe it will be better tomorrow. And I'll try and do trips back to back. So, for example, if I'm heading up to the Arctic, I might do a project on Arctic fox for 10 days, 15 days, something like that. And then I'll combine that with something in Greenland for polar bears because I'm already in the area effectively. I mean, the airfares are so expensive. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine just getting there and staying there is going to cost quite a lot. It is. It's a big investment. For sure. So who is handling these email inquiries to use your work when you're away for two or three months at a time? Well, most of the time I still have access to the internet these days. You know, it's pretty amazing. I was down in the Ross Sea region of Antarctica in January this year, which is about as remote as you could be, you know, at below 70 degrees. And I still on a ship and I still was getting my email on a daily basis and responding to inquiries that were coming in. So there's very few places in the world now where you are not connected. And even when I was in a remote cabin in Greenland a few weeks ago, you know, okay, it was expensive. I ended up with a $1,000 phone bill, but I was using my phone via satellite to get access to my emails. So most of the time I actually do it myself. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And when you said 70 degrees there, you're talking about latitude, I'm guessing. Yeah, 70 degrees south, yeah. Right, okay. That's a long way south, is it? It is a long way south, yeah. (laughs) 
So that's one prong of your three-prong approach to an income, image licensing. What's the second one? The second one is print sales. Now, this is a very much a roller coaster. I wish this was more reliable and I wish it was more predictable. But, you know, I might go a month and sell no prints or I might go a month and sell two or three prints. And I'm very specific about the market I target for my print sales. I'm not interested in selling my work to other photographers. That's not my market. And I'm not interested in selling it to the general public, as it were. What I'm interested in selling it to is art collectors, people who are serious about collecting high-end art to put up on their walls, you know, in their holiday home or, or wherever it might be. So it's a low-volume, high-cost market. So the average print sale starts at around about $5,000 and goes up from there, depending on the size of the print and the edition number of the print. And I have an agent who actually handles this for me. So I never actually meet the client most of the time. I simply get an email from my agent and he says, you know, Josh, I've just sold this print. I need it in this size. When can you ship it to me? But unfortunately, the print sales business is really tough and it's just so all over the place. I mean, it's just not reliable. So how do you make it more reliable? Do you need to have your images in a gallery, you know, like a Ken Duncan, for example? I have done in the past. I've done a number of exhibitions. I haven't done one for a few years now. The last one I did was quite successful for me, and I'm going to do another one. Actually, I had another one planned, big one planned for June this year, but I've just pushed it back until June next year because of the all the social distancing that's in place now as a result of the COVID-19 situation. So that exhibition, which was going to run for a month here in Melbourne and then go to Sydney for a month and then go to the US, has now been pushed back until next year. And I find that, that, that exhibitions are a great way to generate interest and print sales. Right. I'm in the shop part of your website now. I'm looking at one of your images there of an incredible iceberg with amazing colours. And I can see that the print starts at $500. Yeah, these are the what I call the open edition prints that I just have it like for sale on a daily basis. They're not limited. Like my very large prints are limited to like five. That's it. These smaller ones are limited to like 25, but that's not really that limited these days. I think five is limited, 10 is limited, 25 is not so limited. So these are something more when I get an inquiry from someone who says, you know, I'm a big fan of your work. I just would love to buy a print. Someone who's not in a position to perhaps drop five, six, ten thousand $10,000 on a large print, but wants to have an image of a polar bear on the wall, that's what this print makes for. That's filling a specific void in the market. Okay. So can I spend $5,000 on your website or that's something different entirely? No, you cannot. It has to go through my agent. So for someone who's looking for that kind of work, they're typically only buying art through an agent or they're only buying it through a gallery. There are very, very few situations I know of where somebody is dropping in excess of $5,000 on a print online. Right. So would it be the same images that I can see on your website that I can buy for $5,000 or are they something different entirely? Some of them are the same, some of them are different. I have very few on my website at the moment for sale. And typically, I'm only putting them up there when I get contacted from someone that says, you know, can I buy a print of this particular photograph? Usually, they know the photograph they want. So they email me a picture of it saying, I want to buy this photograph. Yes, I can do it. I can do it as a one of 25. It's only in this size, which is a, a A2 or close enough to 17 by 22, and it's $500. And that's the only way I'll do it. Other than that, it goes straight to my next tier, which is uh, through my agent. Okay, got it. For the listener who is unfamiliar with limited edition prints, can you explain how that is and how it works? I have quite strong feelings about limited edition prints. So, you know, I think anything more than, say, let's say 50 in an edition, it's a poster. It's not really limited in edition. You know, limiting something to 100, 200, 500, it's not really limiting it. It's just an arbitrary number. You know, I think. 
for me, a limiting an edition becomes an, it's an edition of five prints only. Each one is hand-signed by the artist. Maybe there's an artist proof as well, so maybe there's six in total, and that's limited. But what does that mean, Josh? Does that mean there's a contract, there's some sort of documentation, so there will only ever be five of these? Yeah, effectively, that's the case. I mean, there's a certificate of authenticity that I put with all my prints that says, and it comes with a little security hologram on it that says this is number, you know, one of five or two of five, whatever the case may be. And it has a matching hologram on the certificate of authenticity. But ultimately, with anything that's limited in edition like this, you are relying on the author's integrity, in my case, the photographer's integrity, not to make more. Because ultimately, with these printers nowadays, it's infinitely repeatable to make the same image again and again and again and again. That's right. So my understanding was, and my only real experience with limited editions is with Ken Duncan because he lives local to me. He's got a gallery near me. And let's say he has a limited edition of 50, for example. Mm -hmm. The way I understand it works is, you know, you can buy the first print of 50 for, say, $100. And the closer you get to 50, the more expensive the print becomes because there's less of them available. Yeah, I do the same thing. Well, I should say my agent does the same thing because he prices them. And this seems to be pretty typical of what goes on in the gallery world. And it's there for one reason only, is a business incentive to help the buyer, encourage the buyer to buy today. Because if they buy today and the print's $5,000 and they're buying number one, then tomorrow number one is sold and we're up to number two. And that's $6,000, obviously there's a higher cost to them. So that's, it's an incentive for them to buy today. This is something I've seen in the gallery world for many, many years now. And it seems to be relatively successful. Yeah. I love the way it works. I love the incentive and I love the fact the artist is getting rewarded for getting closer to the the limited edition number. Yeah, I think it's great because that's the other thing with these limited editions. You know, most people who are doing limited edition prints are never going to get anywhere near selling out in the print. That's been my, you know, even prints I've done in the past that are editions of five and and 10 and things like that. I don't think I've got maybe one or two that are sold out. So they don't often sell out, but really it's about, giving someone the incentive to buy today. And it's not a discount, but it's, I guess it's just a way to encourage them at the end of the day. Yeah. So what's the third prong? So the third prong or the third leg to the tripod, if you like, is really leading workshops and tours. And this is something I started doing about a decade ago now. And it's really as a way to supplement my income. Because when I quit the corporate world and turned full-time professional, I was on pretty good money in the corporate world, you know, 10 years ago. And I knew that I was going to take a big income here. And I did take a big income here for a little while. And the only way I could help to, the only way I could think of to supplement my income from print sales until I built my portfolio in prints was to take other photographers with me and teach them how to photograph, how to do what I do, basically, how to photograph wildlife in the polar regions. And so that's been the third tier. So on a yearly basis, I'm probably running 10 to 12 workshops internationally. Right. And so if you're conducting a workshop, are you still shooting? Are you still adding to your portfolio or you've got to look after your participants? No, participants come first and foremost, above all. I mean, the answer is I still photograph, but I always do an introduction on all the trips that I do with my clients where I explain to them that, look, you know, I am a photographer. I would like to photograph too. However, I am here for you first and foremost, and I will put my camera down the second you need some help. So typically what will happen is, I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm doing a trip for Arctic Fox. I know where to take everybody where I know there's going to be Arctic Fox we can photograph. I will set everybody up with where I think we should be for the background that I want us to have for these images. I'll help them with f-stops and shutter speeds. This is what I recommend you shoot at. This is what I'm shooting at and this is why. This is why I've chosen this particular background. 
because in wildlife photography, background is actually as important, if not more important than the subject. And then what I'll do is I will we'll photograph as a group and then we'll talk about how we framed the photographs. So, you know, I'll show some images on the back of my camera and say, well, look, I put the fox on the left because he was looking into the image. Consider doing that next time around. So I think it's important that as a workshop leader, you are photographing so that people can see what you're doing and why you're doing it. But it's also very important that you're not the sole center of attention. You know, ultimately my responsibility is to help them get the best possible photographs. So that has to come first. Right. So who's your typical workshop client? That's a very good question. And I can sum it up pretty quickly. It's high net worth individuals who typically have a passion for photography, but do not need to make a living from it. So there might be doctors, lawyers, uh, self-employed business professionals who are pursuing photography in their spare time purely for the love of it and want to make great photographs and learn how to make better photographs. So because obviously to do that, to be able to pursue photography at a high standard today and to be able to travel, you need to have money in your pocket because those two things are combined and it's quite expensive. So that's why I say it's generally high net worth individuals. Right. When you first started doing this and you, you, know, you took out your first group, did you have a worry that, hey, they're going to come away with the same or potentially better images than me? Like, was that a concern? No, I was never really concerned about it. You know, it kind of, I kind of fell into it in many ways because I had wanted to go to places like Iceland and Antarctica for many, many years. And I, you know, this is before I was working as a full-time professional. And so I, I invested in going. I spent the money. I went to these places and I started to photograph them. And I started to talk about my photographs to people that I met on these trips. You know, when I'd be out photographing in Iceland, you'd run into other photographers and you'd talk to them so, and they'd see my work. And then I'd go to Antarctica and I'd be talking about Iceland and I'd show my work from Iceland. He would say, well, wow, you know, that's fantastic. Are you going to go back? I'd say, yeah, I'd love to go back. Can I come with you? <laughs> and that's kind of how I fell into it. Before I knew it, I had, you know, quite a few people who were emailing me and contacting me saying, you know, if you're going back to Iceland, we'd love to come with you and go to some of these places. So I put together my first trip basically that way. Um, I was never really concerned that they were going to make better photographs. I'm not that competitive in terms of view of, you know, as the leader, I need to make a better photograph. I don't feel like that. In fact, many times I see fantastic photographs from participants. It actually happens a lot because typically when people are passionate about their subject, they're going to make great photographs. So I, I actually really, really love to see that. So no, I wouldn't say that that's been a problem at all. Nice. What does one of these trips cost, roughly, ballpark? Let's, where's the most popular spot first? Let's talk about a specific trip. What's the most popular? Okay. I think romantically Antarctica is the big one that everybody wants to visit. You know, and, and That's probably, if not number one, very close to a number one destination. But unfortunately, it's also an expensive destination to get to. So typically, there's only two ways to get there. You're either going to go on an expedition ship from South America or New Zealand, or you're going to fly down. Now, if you fly down to Antarctica, it's very expensive, you know, and I'll start at the higher ends. So there's an expedition I do every couple of years for Emperor Penguins where we fly down on a Russian Hercules uh, Aleutian jet from South America. We land on the glacier on the Blue Ice Runway, which is a naturally occurring ice runway. We camp. We then take a twin otter aircraft out to the sea ice. We camp on the sea ice. And we're living with the emperor penguins and we're photographing them on a daily basis. Now, that trip runs a little south of 50,000 US dollars. Wow. That's at, <laughs> that's at the high end. It does sound amazing. It sounds yeah. incredible. <laughs> and then at your entry level to Antarctica, going down on an expedition ship for something like 10, 12, 14 days, that's going to run you somewhere around the 10 to 12, 14,000 US dollars 
depending on what choice of cabin you might take on the ship, plus airfares and you know accessory uh, ancillary travel expenses. So it's not an inexpensive place to go. If you go somewhere like, let's say, Iceland to photograph Arctic fox, it's getting a lot less expensive than somewhere you're around somewhere around the five six thousand US dollar mark for ten to twelve days. So that's probably the low end of it, five to six thousand dollars, and then it goes north from there. Right. So I'm guessing you've learned a lot after running so many of these expeditions. I have. <laughs> I'm guessing it's got to be profitable for you. So how do you work that out? Do you look at a percentage you need to make out of this? Do you look at a, a dollar figure you need to walk away with after each one of these? How does it work? Yeah, I, I tend to work on more of a dollar figure than on a percentage. It does depend very much on a trip-by-trip basis because if I'm doing an expedition based on a ship, most of the profit, is in the last couple of places on the trip. So if it's a 12-person ship, I may not be making money until I get to selling the 11th and 12th place. So there is potentially a lot of risk associated with chartering ships in this regard because ship charter is very expensive. You know, chartering a ship to go down to Antarctica can be half a million dollars. Wow. And then plus fuel, plus berthing fees, plus, 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 plus <laughs> IATA fees. It goes on and on and on. So there's some very significant figures that need to be considered you know, with these trips. So I tend to work more on a what do I need to make versus making a standard 20% GP or something like that on, on an individual trip. Right, okay, got it, got it. I actually have, because of course I have to put in my own airfares as well and flying, you know, to these places is expensive. You fly as many as much as I do. You know, I'm doing 50, 60 flight segments a year. To fly just to London and back business class, you're looking at around about $8,000. So that's that's a very considerable expense as well. I love how you're flying business class, though. That's pretty good. You can't complain. Well, when you fly as much as I do, you kind of have to because uh, the other thing is I can't roll off a plane after 24 hours in the economy and then be expected to lead a group of people at the best of my ability. I need to be sharp. I need to be focused. Sure. Yeah, I get that. No, I'm, I was only having a dig, mate. It sounds amazing. It sounds incredible. Interestingly, I thought you would have been getting commissions from you know National Geographic. Um, I guess there's not many magazines these days. But uh, getting commissions... I still do some magazine work from time to time, but only when it tends to fall into my lap. Premium members of PhotoBiz Exposed hear more of the best photography business strategies from every guest. Josh, it's been incredible to talk to you, mate. Where is the best place for the listener to check out more of your work? The best thing to do is just jump on my website. So if you go to jholko, which is just J for Joshua, and then holko, H-O-L-K-O.com, that's generally the best starting point to jump off and keep up to date on my work. And then I do run a very active blog as well, which is linked to from my site. And also you can find me on social media as well, things like Facebook and Instagram, or just drop me an email. I'm, I'm more than happy to chat anytime. So you can get me through my email address, info at jholko.com. And I'm not traveling at the moment, so I'm more than happy to take an email. Oh, mate, super generous, mate. It really has been a pleasure to talk to you. Your images are amazing. The places you've visited are just mind-blowing. Before I let you go, one last question. Let's say I talk to you in five years, 10 years' time. What's that one image you want to have in your portfolio that you don't have now? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I would love to photograph the Amur leopard. The Amur leopard is one of the rarest leopards in the world. I would love to photograph it in the snow. It's a beautiful leopard. It's my dream. It's my dream shot. Well, so how do you spell that? I've never even heard of that leopard. Yeah, it's just A-M-U-R. So everybody talks about the snow leopard, but the snow leopard's actually not that rare. Uh, there's many places you can go and photograph the snow leopard around the world. 
the Amur leopard is truly a you know, highly endangered cat and a beautiful cat. And the other one, actually, if I can throw a second one in there, is the clouded leopard, which is another one worth looking up as well. It's also a beautiful, uh, beautiful cat. So what was the one you mentioned earlier? I think it was it the Darris cat? Oh, the palace cat. Yeah, the palace cat is it's a smaller cat, uh, not much larger than a domestic house cat that lives in sort of the high steppe region of Mongolia and is a cat I found out about purely by chance because originally I wanted to go and photograph snow leopard on a personal project and I was doing research into it and the more research I did, the more I came to the conclusion that I really had to invest probably six months in the field to get the images that I was looking for and I just didn't have that amount of time to invest. And while I was looking into it, I came across this cat called the palace cat and I started looking into it and I could find almost no images of this cat in the wild that are almost all done in, in zoos. And the more I looked into it, the more I became interested in this cat. And I found out a region in Mongolia where it lives. I found somebody who had done their PhD into this cat. And I contacted them and said, look, I would love to try and photograph this cat in winter in Mongolia. Would you be interested in helping me? I know you've done your PhD in it and you know about this cat and where to find them. And I'd be happy to give you some photographs if you're willing to help me. And we basically did that deal. They arranged the logistics for me in Mongolia. And I went over there last winter and they helped me find this cat. We spent two weeks looking for this cat in winter. Uh, and actually, you can read the story on my blog. I did uh, daily blog updates with video. And we found this cat and I was able to photograph it in winter. And it's a fantastic cat. It's almost as round as it is long. It's like a little ball of fluff. And it's just <laughs> extremely rare, extremely rarely seen. And very little is actually known about it. So I was very happy to find and photograph this cat. That sounds amazing. Well, <laughs> I'm going to go and I'll link to that in the post that accompanies your audio here so we can check that out. Yeah, if people, want to see, if people want to see that, they can just check out the Mongolia portfolio on my website. Okay, that's where we'll see the palace cat. You will see it there. Awesome. Josh, mate, again, massive thanks. And look, before I let you go, I should also say thanks to Tony Knight for putting us in touch. Such a great guy. <laughs> he is, he is. I've interviewed him. He's a fantastic photographer, an amazing guy and so giving. And I know we've been chatting backwards and forwards for quite a while to get you on. And mate, massive thanks for coming on and sharing what you have. Oh, thanks so much, Andy. Look, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to talk about what I do. I, you know, I'm very passionate about it. So any chance to sort of sit down and talk about this with somebody is, is always welcome. And look, just on Tony, you brought up Tony. Tony and I are actually working on a new project together on some videos that will be hopefully coming out later this year. So we'll keep you posted on that. Unreal. Yes, I'd definitely love to see and hear about them. We can let listeners know as well. Fantastic. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Josh as much as I did. I know it was a stray from the usual, but I think it's nice to have a little break. And I hope, like me, you found it interesting to hear from someone who has created a successful business in a genre that we don't often talk about. But I'm sure there's a good chance you've asked yourself, how do these photographers create a successful business around the types of things they love to shoot? I know I certainly did, and it was great to hear about Josh's three-pronged approach to building his business. If you have a follow-up question for Josh, you can hit him up in the comments area of the show notes. Now, in those show notes for this week, you'll see examples of his incredible work. I've also got links to anything and everything that Josh mentioned in the interview. That's all at photobizx.com forward slash 368. And if you are a premium member, 
I'll be adding Josh into the members Facebook group. So you'll have easy access to him there. If you have a follow-up question, if you want to pick his brains about anything that we covered in regards to his photography business, you can do that inside the members group. I've got one big shout out for today's episode, and this one goes to Kelly Wilkie, who is based in the USA, in the Delaware and Wyoming areas, actually, and she's a wedding photographer who has been in business for 25 years. (laughs) I love that. Anyway, Kelly has left a fantastic review in iTunes and a five-star rating for the podcast. She says, hi, Andrew, I just want to say thank you for your amazing podcast. As a photographer with many years under my belt, 25 to be exact, and having pretty much specialized in commercial, food, editorial, and now weddings and headshots, I'm blown away every time I listen. I'm currently on vacation with my family, and they keep asking me what I'm listening to. (laughs) Fact is, I've been doing a marathon of podcasts I either haven't heard or wanted to listen to again. I've had a successful photography business over the years, but and now realizing so many other things I could be doing better and not leave so much money on the table. I've been a premium member for a couple of years, and I've noticed a jump in my sales by implementing several things. This year, I'm committing to really revamping my business and using some new ideas through listening to several of the Business Coach podcasts, as well as other photographers. There are so many rich nuggets to be pulled from each interview. The hardest part is deciding which to implement first. I'm super excited about the future and plan to become your new poster child for success. I haven't been this excited about my business in years. If anyone is thinking about upgrading to the premium content, just do it. I've pretty much put every other podcast on the back burner to just listen to Andrew's interviews. Thanks, Andrew. Kelly, massive thanks to you for that incredible review. I love that you are still loving photography, loving business. And the way you've grown and adapted your business over the years, that is um, fantastic. I, I know, I can see that I'll be having you as an interview guest in the future. I really do. So Kelly, again, massive thanks for taking the time to leave that rating and review. And I have added a link to your beautiful website from the show notes from today's episode to help you just a little bit with your SEO. Alrighty, that is it for this episode of the podcast. I have to wrap this up and get the first unit of the daily vlog challenge up and ready for everyone in the challenge. Don't forget, it's not too late to join the challenge if you listen to this episode as it goes live. There's more details in the show notes over at photobizx.com forward slash 368. A massive thanks again to Josh Holko for coming on and sharing everything he did. I hope you have a fantastic week wherever you are listening from. And I do hope you are staying safe, healthy, and well. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. If you have enjoyed this episode, head to photobizx.com. Join the conversation, leave a comment, and share your thoughts on the interview with Andrew and today's special guest. 